Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 98 of the New Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Ricagliano of the USA Today Network, and we are back after a bit of a delay. I do sincerely apologize to everyone for that. Last week got kind of screwy. I knew it was going to be hectic because the Rangers had games on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday leading into the All-Star break, and I went to Toronto with the team to cover their game on Wednesday. So because of that, I was not able to record on Wednesday like we usually do. And I was originally thinking, okay, we'll just record on Thursday. But then a variety of things happened that kind of changed my mind. For one, the weather in Toronto was not good. There was more snow than I've seen in New York all year up there in that one day. So there were some concerns about traveling back. I did get delayed and didn't make it home at the time that I was thinking I would. But then also just looking at the schedule and realizing, okay, if I record on Thursday, that's not going to include any talk about what happens in Friday's game. And it's also going to kind of have this cliffhanger going into the break, whereas if I wait until the Rangers have wrapped up that full week of play leading into this nine-day break that they have, I would be able to summarize and wrap up what they are doing and where they stand heading into the break much better. So it just felt like Thursday was not the right day to do it. And again, with the way the travel worked out, that was the right call because I didn't end up getting home until late. And so we decided to wait and hold the podcast for this week And now we're back, and now we have the full picture. We have multiple days to process everything that's been going on with this team. You've got Igor Shosturkin, Artemi Panarin, and Adam Fox all heading to Florida for the All-Star Game. If I'm being honest with you guys, the All-Star Game is far from my favorite event of the year. I don't really like All-Star Games for any sports, honestly, so... I'm not particularly excited about this, but if you are, power to you. Enjoy watching all of the different skills competitions and stuff. I actually enjoy the skills competition more than I do the All-Star game itself. But again, these events to me just feel like, you know, it's nice that it breaks up the season. I know the Rangers and a lot of the players in the locker room were excited about having this break, getting a chance to heal up and rest and see some friends and family for a week or so. So that's great. I've definitely been enjoying it. I've been able to do things in the last handful of days that I had no business doing during the regular season. We've only had the little guy in daycare one day this week, so spending a lot of time with the baby, seeing some family, helping out my grandparents with a couple things, able to actually get to the gym today. It's my second time already this week. That's a brag for sure. So that's nice. That's something I don't get to do a whole lot of during the season, cleaning up around the house seeing some friends. Actually, this afternoon, we are finally 
planning to go and pick out my suit or whatever it is that I'm going to wear for our wedding. Yes, after nearly three years of being engaged, we are finally getting married this summer. So able to put some planning into that this week, starting to look at some bachelor party stuff, a lot of different things that during the season I really don't have the time to do. And I've been very excited to get it done in these last few days and, and will for the rest of the week. Also going to a concert and taking my fiance out for a nice dinner over the weekend. So this has definitely been fun. Didn't get away. I'm still home, but have definitely been enjoying myself and relaxing. But with all that being said, I am still doing some work. I'm sure you guys have noticed. I had a story come out on Tuesday that looked at the restricted free agents that the Rangers have coming up this offseason, what those contracts could look like for them, how tight they're going to be on salary cap space. And specifically, I dove in on Philip Heedle and the season that he is having right now and the payday that I think he's setting himself up for. I had an interesting conversation with him right before the break. So you can check that one out. Also did a deep dive into everything that I'm hearing and everything that I think is up in the air as a possibility for the Rangers right now heading into the trade deadline. We're going to talk a lot about that later on in the episode, so I'm not going to jump into it right now, but you can definitely check those stories out on loha.com slash sports slash Rangers. Again, the Rangers off this week won't play again until Monday. Now, they're sitting at 27-14-8. and eight. They put them in third place in the Metro Division, Sixth place in the Eastern Conference. They definitely, to me, looked like they were a notch below the Boston Bruins when they played them in that game a couple weeks ago. They lost 3-1, to one, so I think they have work to do to match up with them. I know Boston finally lost two games in a row, but they still look like the class of the NHL at this point in the season. But as far as the rest of the league goes, It feels like on any given night, the Rangers can find ways to beat pretty much anybody, especially when a night when Igor Shosturkin is on top of his game, you feel like they have a puncher's chance against anybody coming off the playoff run that they had last year and overcoming some adversity over the course of this season. If you look at the last week, they went 2-0-1. Their only loss was a 3-2 loss in overtime in that game in Toronto, But there's some positive things brewing for them right now, especially when you look at the way that the guys on that kid line have been heating up of late. I mentioned Heedle. He led the team in goals scored for the month of January. He had four goals in the last three games heading into this break. I don't think it's any coincidence that that came while he was playing on that kid line with Alexi Lafreniere and Capo Caco. Hedl was joking by his locker when I was talking to him the other day. You guys have probably heard me talk about this before, but at practice, the Rangers are always grouped based on what line they're on. And each line, those three forwards, were always wear the same jersey color. The third line in my time covering the team almost always wears green. So Hedl has pretty consistently been wearing green for multiple years now. It's Lafreniere and Kako who seem to kind of get shuffled around and change spots all the time. So Hedo was joking, those guys always try to get away from me, but they can't help it. I'm like a magnet. They keep coming back to me. So I thought that that was pretty funny. But it also shows, and and the way that Kako, especially I talked to him the other day as well, 
makes it out to be, and we know we've talked about this before, how much Kako relished that chance to play in the top line with Zabanajad and Kreider. I also think that they've all grown more of an appreciation for each other and the way that they play when they're with each other. And Gerard Gallant made this point, and I think it's a valid one, that especially Kako and Lafreniere, when they're up in the lineup playing with these veteran guys, they seem to defer a little too much, whereas when they're on this kid line, everybody takes on more of an aggressive mindset. And you just see the way that they attack, whether it's on the forecheck, whether it's creating offensive chances, whether it's being more willing to shoot the puck, which a lot of those guys don't do often enough. I think that's been really evident in the last week. The first time that Gallant had them together earlier this season, it didn't quite have that same spark that we saw in the playoffs. But this time, they've been carrying the team. I mean, that that game in Toronto, there's no way the Rangers get a point out of that, if not for the kid line, which produced both goals. The kid line was buzzing all week long. And now your wheels are starting to turn like, okay, a couple weeks ago, I maybe thought that Kaka was best off with Kreider and Zabanajad, and you were going to kind of piece together the rest of your lineup after that. Right now, it feels like you'd have a really tough time breaking up that kid line. And so that changes the dynamic of the rest of the lineup because the Panarin Trocheck thing is certainly on hold for now. It hasn't worked so far. I think Trocheck especially has looked much more comfortable and effective when he's not playing with Panarin, when he's playing with more of those, I hate to keep beating this term to death, but more of those north-south straight line kind of players. He finished up playing with Chris Kreider and Barclay Gaudreau, and I thought that they were maybe the Rangers' best line in that win on Friday night over the Vegas Golden Knights. And so I think you want to keep Trocheck with guys like that. I think Jimmy Vesey is another option for that line. He's worked pretty well with him in previous stints as well. And then what you have right now, even though it certainly hasn't clicked, and I thought Mika Zibanejad gave a really honest answer when I asked about this on Friday, right now, almost by default, you've got Panarin playing on the top line with Mika Zibanejad. And I don't think either one of those guys is thrilled with how it's gone so far. And Mika said, look, you know, when we play together, everybody's always asking about how this is going to work. There's a lot of pressure, he admitted, that they feel to try and make it work. But then there's also this start and stop. Every time that they've had opportunities in the past, it's always been very short-lived. And so I think it's in the back of their mind Is this for real or are we just going to end up back apart in another couple games? So right now, based on the other factors that we're talking about, the kid line clicking and Trocek working in the spot where he is, you almost have to keep Panarin with Zibanejad. And I think knowing that Mika was saying going into the break and, and coming out of the break, they have more time to process it, more time to wrap their heads around it. I just think it's been disjointed in the past because it was always such short spurts. They would have like a game or two together or even a period or two together, and then it got broken up. So I think they're still sort of searching to figure each other out and figure how this thing might work. But right now, it feels like that's probably the way they're going to look coming out of the break. Who knows, though? Gerard Gallant could come up with other ideas while he's sitting on his couch playing with the grandkids in the next couple of weeks. And then maybe we, they come back and we see something different, but that was how they ended. And that Panarin Zabanajad thing, especially like I said, with the way that Mika was talking about it, 
I was asking him if, if he thinks that they've made some positive steps. And he kind of hesitated. He was like, ah, you know, it's, it's sort of been some good and some bad. And he went into a pretty detailed answer about why he thinks that it hasn't been at the level that they want it to be so far since they've been together for a handful of games now in the last couple of weeks. So that, that's definitely something to monitor when they come back. For all the ups and downs, though, you have to admit the Rangers are mostly where they want to be in the standings. It hasn't always looked great. But they have a great chance of making the playoffs right now. We know that's the ultimate goal. In in this league, the way that the NHL playoffs are laid out, I don't think it really matters a whole lot which seed you are or where you finished in your division. As long as you get in, you have a chance to go on a run. The Rangers showed that last year. And and right now, I think last I looked, their odds are like 70-something percent of making the playoffs. They have themselves in strong position. And what that means is these next, few months are going to be really interesting and potentially really fun. So that is definitely something to look forward to. Again, some legitimate concerns remain. The the scoring to me is probably the top thing. Their five-on-five offense and their power play, which was a strength last year and has struggled for long stretches this year, have both been pretty underwhelming this season, very up and down, hot and cold. But I also think the overall team depth, the overall team speed, those are are issues that I have for the Rangers, especially once they end up playing teams like Boston or some of the best teams in the league in a seven-game scenario. So there are certainly, certainly lingering questions for this team, but they do have some time to address it. The trade deadline, it's February 1st today when I'm recording. The trade deadline is about a month away. March 3rd will be the deadline, and there's time to tinker. There's a lot of balls in the air. There's a lot of rumors swirling right now. Again, I addressed that in this story that went up on Wednesday morning, and we're going to talk about it a lot more over the course of this podcast. This break really felt like the perfect time to address all of that, everything I'm hearing, everything that I think about where the team stands, what they might do at the deadline. And that's why we're going to make this a long mailbag episode. I'm going to answer as many questions as I can in the next segment of the podcast. That will be, I promise, a strictly hockey conversation that we're going to get into in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I'm going to take a moment here. I did want to address the topic that if you look at what I've been asked about in the past week, this is by far the number one topic. Of course, what I'm talking about is the Rangers and their mishandling of Pride Night on Friday night. So You know, I know a lot of you come to this podcast because you want to hear about hockey and you want to hear about the Rangers. And again, that's what the vast majority of this is going to be devoted to. But you can't deny that this has been a very relevant topic for the team in the last handful of days. And for me to be able to address it, not just with a written column, which I did a few days ago, but also in this conversational setting where I can talk directly to you guys and let you know where I'm coming from. I think it's important, and I think it's important for everybody to to engage in conversations like this. And there are a lot of layers to this. The first thing that we have to say right off the bat is that the Rangers screwed up. And if you're arguing against that, you're either being biased because you're a fan of the team, which, listen, I understand that. I completely understand that. Or, unfortunately, I think there's also some people who are arguing against that point just out of blatant homophobia. There's no other way really to put it. It's upsetting to see some 
of the discourse surrounding this topic. You, you look on social media, it has been ugly for a lot of the comments that you're seeing. And I know that doesn't represent the vast majority of people, but unfortunately, it does help shape the narrative. And that's, again, why I think it's important to have this conversation. Uh, On the surface level, just the basics of how the Rangers mishandled this. The fact is, they said they were going to do something, and then they didn't do it. I've shared the screenshot. I've written about it. You can go back and find this, I'm sure, in many places on the internet. When the Rangers were first promoting Pride Night, as they have several years in the past, I've covered all of them. I know what I've seen on those nights. They promoted that the players, on top of all the other festivities they had going on, the players would be wearing the special warm-up uniforms and wrapping their sticks in the rainbow tape as they have in previous years. And as we know, in previous years, they've then gone on to auction off those jerseys, often signed by the players, and then make donations to charities that are associated with whichever cause that might be that they're celebrating that night. So it was a missed opportunity not only to donate to those charities, but it was also blatantly telling fans you were going to do something, promoting ticket sales around doing that thing, and then not doing it. They sold tickets, again, based on that. I've heard from people who picked that game. You know, a lot of people can't afford to go to a whole lot of Rangers games. It's not the cheapest thing to do. And when you're looking at the schedule and you're deciding which night would be most meaningful for me to come and support the team and pay to watch them play, some people that I've heard from, and I'm sure a lot more that I didn't hear from, picked that night because Pride Night meant something to them, and seeing their favorite players representing them, maybe as a member of the LGBTQ community, or friends, family, whoever it might be, that meant something to them. So whether it meant something to you or not is irrelevant. There are people that it meant something to, and there are people who paid with that being part of the motivation for buying those tickets on that given night. What do the Rangers do? They tried to pull a fast one, and they hoped nobody would notice. I mean, as far as a PR blunder, that is inexplicable. It's it's really, really crazy to think that they thought that they would get away with that. Maybe they were expecting some kind of backlash, and it got bigger than they expected. I don't know, but it, it just, it was botched all the way around. And more importantly, it was undoubtedly a slap in the face to the LGBTQ community particularly when you consider that for every other night, they have these nights all the time. I can remember Hispanic Heritage Month. I know they do nights to support the military. I know they do nights for Black Heritage Month in February. They do all kinds of events like this, a handful of them a season. And every time they wear special warm-up uniforms, they wear special warm-up uniforms for multiple occasions over the course of the season. It's very common to see them take the ice and say, oh, they're wearing these tonight. That that one's got camouflage or that one's got whatever it is. So to do that and then auction those jerseys off for literally every other special night and then decline to do it for this night, that is a slap in the face to the people who you are supposedly supporting or trying to honor that night. So it just left this this hole and had everybody scratching their head and wondering what gives, 
why is this different from what we've seen in years past or different from what we've seen on other nights for other causes. It stands out that this was the group they decided not to make that simple. And it's a simple gesture for, yes, of course, the organization has to pay for the special warm-up uniforms and somebody has to design them, but the players just have to put them on and do their warm-ups and then maybe make a few signatures afterwards. It's a pretty simple gesture, but it's meaningful. And it stands out when you selectively say, okay, we're going to do it for this group, but we're not going to do it for that group. And then to top it all off, they declined to explain why the night of, I was told that they weren't planning on commenting on it. And then the next day after my column comes out, and I have reached out to them the day that the column was coming out and saying, hey, listen, I'm going to write about this. I'm giving you another chance in case you want to give me a statement. They waited until after the story was published, and then they send that vague, cryptic, two-sentence statement. So if you read the statement, it really didn't say much. It sort of hinted that there were maybe people whose views weren't reflected in that, and they wanted to be respectful of everybody's views. But again, it was very generic and really didn't offer much clarity at all. And it ends up creating all this speculation. Are, are we to believe that maybe... There was a player or multiple players who didn't want to participate or did it come from higher up in the organization? We don't know. We don't know. We'll probably never get a straight answer on that. And I have to believe, I think a lot of people have to believe that what we saw with the Philadelphia Flyers were Ivan Provorov declined to participate in warm-ups on the night when the Flyers had their pride night and cited his religious beliefs as the reason for not wanting to do it, that I don't know if that spooked other teams. It's definitely been a conversation around the league. Teams didn't want the PR blow up and the mess that the Flyers were dealing with. So maybe there was some motivation in that. Maybe a player came to them and was like, hey, you know, because of what happened with the Flyers, I I think I'd rather not participate too. Or maybe it was just someone higher up that was like, you know what, let's not risk it. We're not going to do it. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities and we don't have any straight answers. And I can tell you guys right now, I'm not planning to go on a witch hunt. I I don't think it's fair for me to go around asking teammates to point fingers at each other. If somebody wants to offer up that information, that's one thing. But I don't know if it would be the right thing, and I don't really know what it would accomplish to try to find a scapegoat or try to create some sort of dissent within the locker room. I feel like that is not my position. That's not my responsibility. I do believe that most, if not all, it's very possible that all players were on board for doing this. Ultimately, though, it's on the organization to explain these decisions, not the players. The the organization organized this night. They made all the plans and ultimately what they say goes. So if they chose not to hang up those jerseys in the lockers for the players to, to wear them, then that's on them. And again, they chose to sort of dance around it and skirt around it. They had multiple chances to explain it. I called them on their BS when they decided not to do it or to give that little vague statement that they did. And then I think what's more important at this point is not to go on the witch hunt, 
but try to pull back the layers and, and open up a bigger conversation. And that's what I was trying to do with my column, and that's what we're trying to kind of further the discussion here. As far as the more nuanced conversation, as we peel back the layers, I, I kept coming back to this thought that I had as soon as the Rangers took the ice for warm-ups, and then I kept thinking about after, later on that night or the next day. Why are they doing this in the first place? Is it a genuine attempt to support causes that they really care about? Or is it just to sell tickets and manipulate fans into thinking that both the NHL and these individual teams care? Because if it's the latter, to me, that's a hollow gesture. And frankly, it's offensive. You don't have to try to fool me into thinking that you care when you don't. I don't think that that helps further any of these causes. You can usually feel the difference between something that's sincere and something that's contrived. Friday, to me, felt like they were just going through the motions. Yeah, they had the ceremonial puck drop and they lit up the outside of the building and they they had a, a gay singer come in and do the national anthem. That's great. I'm not certainly not saying that there was no effort on the Rangers' part to, to make the night special for the LGBTQ community, but when you're pulling back things that you did in the past or deciding to opt out of things that you had previously promoted that you were going to do, it all feels disingenuous. It makes it feel like you're just doing this because you're supposed to do it or you were told to do it. If you're going to hold these events, I don't really have a better term for this. I don't half-ass it. Do it right and put some actual thought into it. Otherwise, Spare us. It's a sham otherwise, at least in my eyes. Now, I I would like to add this because I think this is also an important part of this conversation. I've heard from, from many people, including LGBTQ fans, who seem to wholeheartedly agree with what I'm saying, that if you don't actually care about the issue, don't pretend that you do. They feel disrespected by teams that think they can have a pride night for those phony reasons and then go right back to not caring every other day of the year. But it's also important to say this, this sport, and if you deny this, you're not paying attention or you're just putting the blinders on, has a a very checkered history of discrimination. So with that in mind, I also get why people would say that these events are important to making everybody feel welcome and trying to change minds. Is forcing them to do it the right answer? I'm honestly not sure how much that helps if the teams that are running these events don't have real, sincere intentions. But I also don't want to sweep those legitimate concerns under the rug because hockey has not been a sport for everybody for the most part. There's very limited minority participation. There are a a variety of reasons, and we've heard from some of these players themselves, why gay players and gay fans don't feel welcome. And so making them feel included, making them feel like this is a sport that they can enjoy and love just like the rest of us, that is very, very, very important. But again, to me, it still feels like an ineffective practice if it's disingenuous. I don't know exactly what the solution is, but I I kept coming back to this thought. And maybe I'm being too much of an idealist, but... Rather than having the same cookie cutter, 
process for all of these teams. It's like they copy and paste this around the league, exactly how you're going to make these nights run, and they just kind of go through the motions. I'd love to see more open dialogue. Which issues mean the most to the players in the locker room or the employees for a given team? You can have those conversations. A lot of these teams have different mental coaches or psychiatrists or people that work with these players and could foster these conversations. The player themselves could have players only meetings and foster these conversations. What is important to them as far as the issues that they want to support? Because these people are in positions of power. They are in the unique position where they can make a difference. And I think to dismiss that and just say stick to sports is completely off base. If if they want to stick to sports, if they're not politically driven or socially driven, listen, everybody has the right to do what they want. But I do believe that you, if you had open conversations among the players in the locker room, that a lot of them would have causes that they want to support and you could come to some kind of a consensus. Also, and this is probably even more important than what the players think, but what matters to your community? These teams represent towns and cities across North America. And each town and city has their own issues that they grapple with. So if you allow the fans to have input, that is going to make these events all the more powerful, all the more meaningful. If the organizations and their fans and their communities take ownership of these events and these causes and what they can do to help, their contributions hold more meaning. Again, maybe I'm being too optimistic about this. Maybe these wouldn't be able to get everybody on the same page and it would end up being a mess. But I have to believe that with some thought put into it, you could identify the social causes and the issues that would make the biggest impact in your area and for the players on your team and for the fans that care about your team and go based on that and then build these events where people from the community are involved and you're actually making a difference instead of just this facade of, hey, look at us. We're going to have somebody drop the puck and we're going to light up our building and everyone's going to think that we care because of that. Again, those gestures feel hollow. If you're going to do these things, I would love to see them have more meaning behind them. The final part I'll say on this because some people have asked this question. What happens if none or, or let's say very few of the players on the team or people that work in the organization choose to support LGBTQ or race issues? That would be a very, very sad reality. But you want to talk about exposing. That would certainly expose the flaws in the way that the hockey community as a whole thinks. So... For better or for worse, if you let teams make their own calls about which events they want to hold and which causes they want to support, if it's glaring that things like that aren't being supported, well, people would pick up on that. People aren't stupid. People would realize, hey, none of these teams are supporting the gay community or none of these teams are supporting racial issues, and they would be called on their BS. And hopefully, hopefully, that would lead to more positive change. Again, there's no perfect answer, but I'm not going to be shy about discussing it, and I hope none of you are either. 
99% of my focus goes into covering the team and giving you all an escape from real life. I love sports. I love hockey. I love my job. And that is always going to be the primary thing that I try to accomplish on the podcast and in all my written stories. You can go through my written stories. You know, 99.9% of them are focused on the team itself or hockey. But there's too much hate out there and not enough love in the world for us to ignore some of these antiquated ways of thinking that are still too prevalent in the game that we love. So that's my piece on that. That's what I wanted to get to near the top of this podcast to discuss because, again, my emails and my Twitter and all that stuff has just been flooded in the last few days. So I would have been remiss if I let this podcast go by without hoping to have this conversation. And again, this is a conversation. I'm not saying I'm 100% right on everything, but I'm giving you my feelings and, and what I'm hearing and feedback from fans. And I think it's an important topic for us to talk about. And certainly the Rangers, the Rangers made it a topic that everybody was talking about with the way that they chose to handle it. So with that, we are now going to talk about some hockey, take a short break here, and then I'm going to come back and answer as many of your questions as I can for this mailbag episode. Okay, let's dive right in. I honestly have not looked at any of these. I I usually do when I'm just picking out a few of them, but for this purpose, we're just going to dive right in and see what happens. We'll start with the first one I see here is Eddie Nathan, who wrote, if you're the GM and these two deals are available for a reasonable return of draft picks and prospects, which do you do and why? Option A is Timo Meyer. Option B is Ivan Barbashev, Tyler Mott, and Joel Edmondson. So this was sort of the crux of this trade deadline preview that I wrote on Wednesday. And there are basically two paths. I mean, I wrote that there are three because the third one is do nothing, but I, I think that's the least likely. So as far as paths that would require action at the trade deadline. There, there are two routes that I see Chris Drury could go here. One is go for the big splash. And that would mean acquiring a star player or a highly paid player, specifically right winger, because that seems to be the main priority for the Rangers at the deadline, especially a right winger who can score. And if they do that, if they were to pursue one of those high paid guys, because of the cap space that they're looking at. And they're down now because of some of these days that they've had where they've expanded their roster, for example, sending Sammy Blay down in the conditioning stint and calling up Will Cooley. They were paying the full 23 guys for a handful of days, and, and they've done that at various points this season. They were originally on pace to accrue over $7 million in cap space by the time the deadline got here. But now they're looking at, and this is if they keep the current roster. Of course, things could change. But now they're looking at about six and three quarters of a million dollars in salary cap space by the time the deadline gets here. So you got to factor that in when you're looking at some of these trade scenarios. And if they were to acquire a guy like Meyer, who is a $6 million cap hit, they really wouldn't have much flexibility to do anything else except maybe acquire a guy who's making right around the league minimum. So if they were to go after Meyer, 
Patrick Kane, if if you got Chicago to eat half of his salary, would be 5.25, so you could fit a little bit more salary in with a guy like that. But, you know, those are going to be the two main guys that everybody is speculating about, certainly as far as the rumor mill goes. But so they can go this path where they go for the big splash. Or, and this is the main point of what I wrote, I'm starting to feel more and more like it's leaning in the other direction. They could spread out that $6.78 million and try to address multiple needs. And if you look at this roster, I'm sure as fans, a lot of you guys have kind of figured this out on your own, but this is also what I'm hearing. They want a right winger who can score and potentially play in their top six. That's priority number one. Priority number two, they would like to add a left-handed defenseman who would compete with Ben Harper for a spot on that bottom pair. They did just give Ben Harper that extension, but that extension really doesn't mean that they can't replace him. He can easily slide down and be the seventh defenseman. And I think if they had their druthers, if they were able to do whatever they want and and address all their needs, for depth purposes, they would benefit from adding a bottom six type of player, maybe a fourth line type of player, who would help with this aggressive forechecking system that Gallant wants them to play and help with the team speed issue. Speed is the main reason Gallant has told us why Sammy Blay hasn't been playing. It was the main reason the Rangers traded Ryan Reeves. They have a need for speed in their bottom six right now. And if you look at their usage in recent weeks, the fourth line is barely playing at all. Those guys are getting like five or six minutes a night. So for the Rangers to have the depth that they need to succeed in in a grueling playoff run, they need to be able to form a fourth line that they trust more than what they have right now. So if you could add, by Eddie's example, a Barbashev who would potentially have some scoring upside and could fill that right wing void, a guy like Tyler Mott who would bring some speed and some energy and, and make your whole lineup whole and support that fourth line, as well as a defenseman, I don't think... Edmondson's going to be the guy, but as well as a defenseman, I lean more toward the Rangers going down that path. I think of the names you mentioned, Barbashev and Mott are definitely on the Rangers' radar. I wrote about both of those guys. Edmondson, I'm not so sure. There's a list of left-handed defensemen who make either two-ish million or less than that. Some guys are around league minimum that I listed in the story who I think could be options there. But I think for the Rangers to have the best chance of success, they need to be able to plug multiple holes. Now, Meyer, of all the guys that are available, is to me, hands down, the best fit for what the Rangers need on the ice. But as we talked about, I believe, on last week's episode, the salary restrictions that would come with him, with the $10 million qualifying offer that he would be due this summer, and if you were going to sign him long-term, which would obviously be the goal for any team that's going to trade for him, everything I'm hearing is that his contract is going to start with an $8 million per year figure. So the Rangers, and I outlined this in the story that I wrote the previous day, the Rangers are looking at $16 million this offseason to fill eight or nine spots on the roster. That's roughly $2 million on average they can pay per player. 
They're obviously going to have to pay more than that for Keandre Miller and Philip Heedle if they want to keep them. Lafreniere, I think, is going to be over that $2 million marker. Those guys are going to eat up well over half of that available cap space if you want to keep them all, which I believe in an ideal world the Rangers would. And then all you have left is enough money to fill spots with either entry-level contract guys or league minimum guys. Meyer does not fit into that equation. If you're going to trade for Meyer and keep him beyond this season, you would probably have to lose Hedl and Miller or Hedl and Lindgren or Goudreau and Miller. You'd have to make multiple sacrifices on top of whatever you give up to get him, which is probably going to be a first-round pick and more. So it's a lot to sacrifice for one guy. As much as he's the perfect fit, because the guy ranks second in the NHL in shots. We talk about the Rangers need to shoot the puck more all the time. Nobody or very few shoot the puck as much as Timo Meyer does. 28 goals so far this season would be a dynamic addition on the right wing. You feel like he would fit perfectly with Artemi Panarin. You can envision Panarin with all those passes he likes to make, setting up Meyer for a ton of chances. Maybe the Rangers decide, you know what, screw it. We'll worry about this offseason when we get there. We might have to just either trade Meyer or let him walk as a UFA. I don't think that would be great asset management, but it's it's not a possibility that I would completely rule out. But knowing that they couldn't keep him long-term unless they pretty much gut a, a portion of their roster, I think it's more likely they're going to try to attack multiple needs, spread that cap space around, and take the same route that they did last season when they made four trades, and you saw how much deeper they were as a team after that trade deadline. I'm sure some of these other questions are going to go into that too, so let's keep going here. From Caitlin, we have all things considered, salary cap management, coaching core. Do you think it's actually achievable to win within the three-ish year period that you've talked about? Yes, Caitlin, I think it is. But as we've talked about many times, I think a lot of it is contingent on the growth from the kids. If Hedl and Lafreniere and Kako and Miller and Schneider continue to blossom and quite frankly, in most cases, take major leaps beyond what we've seen so far, then yes, I do think the Rangers are capable of winning, especially with the goaltending that they have. But I'm not convinced that if those guys just end up being mostly role players, bottom six guys, you know, not really developing into the top six or top four kind of defensemen that you hope that they're going to be, that the Rangers are going to have a really hard time winning. Because as we just talked about with the salary cap space, their flexibility to go out and add a piece, let's say like Meyer for the long term, is extremely limited. So They've made their bet. Chris Drury has given out multiple contract extensions to the core players on this team. Mika Zibanejad, Adam Fox, Igor Shosturkin. Before Drury was in charge, they gave big contracts to Chris Kreider and to Artemi Panarin and Jacob Truba. Drury also gave Goudreau a pretty sizable contract, especially for a bottom six guy. So They have determined that that is where they're going to allocate the majority of their salary cap space. Now, when the cap opens up, which it's supposed to do not this offseason, but the following offseason, and then even more so the year after that, then they might have the ability to add an impact piece in free agency or via trade. But as far as this season and next season are concerned, we'll see what they do at this trade deadline. But 
I think this core that they have in place right now is the core that they're banking on winning. So do I think this is a Stanley Cup caliber core right now? I certainly wouldn't write them as the favorites. But if a lot of things fall into place as far as the development for their young players, then it's not far-fetched. They were in the Eastern Conference Final last year, and conceivably, if they get growth from players in key spots, they could take that a step further, whether it's this year or next year. So I think it's possible, but am I putting my money on it? You know, I'm I'm not exactly a wagering kind of guy, so I would hold off on that. But yeah, they have a quality team in place. They've got a lot of really good pieces, both veteran guys and young guys. The question is, can they collectively take it to the next level? And and that's why we watch. That's the beauty of it. We're going to see in the next few months, and then if you want to go beyond this season, next season as well, we're going to see if they're able to get it done. Right now, I certainly don't think that they're the, the team that I would pick to win the Stanley Cup, but crazier things have happened, so we'll see. All right. A lot of trade deadline. What moves do you think the Rangers make at the trade deadline? I see Julia. I see a couple other people asking that. So I I will, I touched on it with my answer to Eddie's question. I'll give you guys kind of a rundown of some of these names that I'm keeping my eye on going into the trade deadline. Obviously, Meyer and Kane. I wouldn't be shocked if the Rangers end up with either one of those guys. But for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about, I'm not betting on it right now. I, I would say that it's more likely they're going to go for guys that aren't as much of household names at this point. A few names that are really intriguing to me, especially to fill that scoring right wing gap. We talked about Barbashev. He is a still relatively young. I think he's 26 or 27 right winger for the St. Louis Blues. He had 60 points last season, I think 24 goals. So he's been a productive player for a winning team in St. Louis. But St. Louis is is fading in the playoff race right now, and it sounds like he could be available. He's an unrestricted free agent this summer, and his cap hit for the rest of the year is only $2.25 million. So you could put him in your lineup and still have a lot of space to go out and get that defenseman and, and get that bottom six speed piece that we've talked about. And again, you put him in a situation where maybe he's playing with Panarin or he's playing with some highly skilled line mates, he's shown that he's a guy that can produce and all accounts on him or he's a good skater, he plays hard. There's definitely things to like about his game. There's some talent there for sure. The other team I have my eye on for reasons other than Kane are the Chicago Blackhawks. And they have two guys that intrigue me. One of them is Andres Athanasiu. I think I nailed that. Let's hope I did. I'm pretty sure I did. I've I've looked it up a few times in the last few weeks because I want to make sure that I have it right for situations like these. But Athanasiu is a guy who, you look at his production the last couple years, it certainly doesn't jump off the page at you. But he's got a 30-goal season on his resume. He dealt with some injuries last year in L.A., but still scored 11 goals in 28 games. He's got 10 goals this year, but you look at some of the underlying numbers. And there's a lot to like about him. He's known as a really high-end skater, a guy who really pushes the pace on the right wing, which is exactly what the Rangers need. And if you go on Natural Stat Trick, which I did the other day, and look up the team leaders for the Blackhawks in high-danger scoring chances, he's number one. So this guy is getting in position to score. He's using his speed. 
He's not finishing as much as he has in the past, but he almost feels to me a little bit like a Frank Vetrano type of guy that the Rangers could uncover. He wouldn't cost them a lot to acquire. I could see them getting him for maybe a third or a fourth round pick, something like that. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent, only making $3 million. So again, eats up less than half of that available cap space that we expect the Rangers to have. And there's certainly some goal scoring upside there based on his track record. So he's a guy that intrigues me. And then on the same team for Chicago, Max Domi is having kind of a sleeper, pretty solid season. I think he's got like 35 points right now. He was a guy that I thought was really a pest for the Carolina Hurricanes in the playoffs last year. I know he had some big goals for them in the playoffs last year. So he he has playoff experience. He's putting up points on a bad Chicago team right now. His face-off win rate is over 55%. So that would be a feather in the Rangers cap. And he can play multiple positions. You can play him at center in a pinch. That's where he's been mostly playing with Chicago. But he also has, I think, pretty decent experience at right wing. So he could easily slide to right wing and then take face-offs for you in key situations as needed. And he's another guy only making $3 million. So Athanasiu, Domi, and Barbashev are three guys that I think are probably more middle six forwards, but you could envision them, if things click, moving up in the lineup. And they're certainly better than a lot of the options the Rangers have at right wing right now. So so those are a few guys that intrigue me, no doubt. I know a lot of people have written about Vlad Tarasenko as well. Listen, he would be a great addition for the Rangers. Another high-end scoring right winger, probably in a similar conversation with Timo Meyer as far as the ideal fits for the Rangers. But his salary is $7.5 million. I think the only feasible way for the Rangers to do that is if they got the Blues to eat a big portion of that. Now, if they did, like let's say St. Louis is willing to retain half of that salary and you could get him for, it would be 3.75, that would be very appealing. And I absolutely think that would be something the Rangers should consider. But if you're going to get a player of that caliber and you're going to convince them to retain salary, you're probably going to have to fork over first round pick prospects uh, a lot, a very hefty trade package. Whereas the guys like Domi or the guys like Barbashev, I think you're probably talking like second, third, maybe fourth round pick, especially for Athanasiu. And that's much easier to stomach and leaves you with a lot of ammo to address other needs as well, on top of leaving you with salary cap. So for me, I think that those are some of the options that I would be intrigued by. And I do believe that some of those names I've mentioned are guys that the Rangers have made calls on. And then you could move down the line. And I mentioned a handful of names in my story, but you can move down, whether it's a Tyler Mott or a Sam Lafferty or a Steven Lorenz, a guy like that who might be able to make your fourth line better and play the kind of role that Gerard Gallant wants from them and also go and and find yourself a defenseman as well. So I think the Rangers are likely to make multiple trades at this trade deadline. And I think that you're going to see Patrick Kane's name everywhere and you're going to see Timo Meyer's name everywhere. And maybe, maybe the Rangers end up finding a way to make it work for those guys. But my most likely scenario is that it's probably lesser names than that and it's multiple guys. That's what I think they're going to do at the deadline. If you're asking me today on February 1st, of course, 
We'll continue to talk about this in the coming weeks, and my mind could change, but that is definitely where I stand today. All right. Brian Criscullo wrote, is it more feasible for the Rangers to try and lock up Miller and Heedle long-term to try and save money down the road, or are they looking for two-year bridge deals? This is going to be really, really interesting. Maybe I'm too much of a nerd and I focus on this stuff too much, but I'm very intrigued to see how the Rangers handle their RFAs this summer. Lafreniere, I feel fairly confident right now, especially with the kind of season that he's having where he hasn't really taken off and he's had some struggles that have been very public and he got scratched and all that. I think he is going to end up with a bridge deal. I would be shocked if it's anything other than that. You're going to see him, I think, right along the lines of what the Rangers did with Heedle and what the Rangers did with Kako. It's going to be a two-year deal, and it's going to be two-point-something. I think Heedle ended up at 2.3. Kako ended up at $2.1 million per year. Figure Lafreniere somewhere in that two to two-and-a-half range over two years. I think he's the easiest one to predict right now. Heedle and Miller are much different stories. There's two schools of thought here. Number one, teams and increasingly players, I mean, for players, you can't blame them. Long-term security is really important. And if somebody's going to come in and offer you a six, seven, eight-year deal at an AAV that maybe isn't quite at the top end of what you want, but gives you that long-term security, you see a lot of teams go that route. So, I think it's feasible with Heedle and Miller that you could see if they can find agreeable terms for both sides that they would sign a long-term deal that would limit their upside but would give them multiple years of knowing, okay, I'm going to make my four, four and a half, five million dollars a season. I think both of those guys are probably looking in that four to five range. Miller, I think... Could maybe push for a little bit more than that, but it's probably going to land somewhere between four and five. Heedle, you know, maybe on the low end, the Rangers be able to get him for like three and a half, but I think he's going to be four million or so per year as well. So if the Rangers were willing to say, hey, we'll give you, let's say, four and a half million dollars over seven or eight years, what would those guys say? Would they take that deal? The other school of thought is, as we've touched on a little bit, beginning with the 24-25 season and then increasing each year after that, the salary cap is finally expected to, to pop open a little bit and create some breathing room for these teams. Any player who's negotiating right now or this summer, they know that teams are, are, are cap-strapped. Teams cannot afford to really go to very high numbers right now. So knowing that the Rangers will be in a position to offer more money in another year or two. Do guys like Heedle and Miller look at that and say, you know what, I'll take a one or two year deal, probably two years would be more likely, but it could be one, especially for a guy like Heedle if he goes to arbitration. Will you take a short-term deal at one of those numbers that we talked about, four million, four and a half million, and then sort of bet on yourself and hope that In another year or two, when the cap number jumps and you have continued to grow as a player and become more productive and more consistent, that your value will go way up. And then maybe in two years, 
instead of getting four or four and a half million, you're in a position to ask for six or seven million. So that is a very interesting conversation that I'm sure these players are going to be having with their agents. And, and I'm very curious to see how it goes. With Heedle and Miller, again, either route wouldn't surprise me. I'm sure that there's some motivation on both sides to talk about a long-term deal. But if you're the player, you also have to sit there and say, you know what? If I continue to develop, if I become the player that I envision myself becoming in the next couple years, taking a short-term deal is risk. There's risk involved there, but I could end up getting a higher AAV and making more money in the long run if I just wait until those years when I know the salary cap is going to go up. So definitely something I'm sure we'll talk about more. And I, I know a conversation that's happening around the league right now as well. All right, let's keep scrolling here. Robert Jordan, does Lafreniere honestly have a long-term place on this team? Othman is in the wings and he doesn't seem to want to stay in Hartford. So unless one of them goes to the right, I assume the Rangers like Othman's potential over Laf's current performance, right? Not saying this is the right move. I wouldn't say that they like Othman's potential over Lafreniere. I think everybody would still feel that Lafreniere has the higher potential. It is an interesting dilemma they have as far as the left wing thing goes because they keep trying to figure out who's going to move to the right side because Panarin, Kreider, and Lafreniere, we know all prefer the left. And it always seems like nobody's comfortable there. He tried it with Kreider last week or two And it only lasted a couple games before he said, you know what, Kreider's not comfortable there and moved him back to the left. So it's certainly a dilemma. Lafreniere, I feel like they honestly haven't given him enough of a look on the right side this season. He's multiple times stated that he'd be fine with playing on the right. So he ultimately feels like if anybody's going to make the move, it's going to be him. But they've been reluctant to do it. And now that the kid line's going the way that they are, I don't don't think that's going to change. But Othman... He said he's okay playing the right. We'll see if that comes to fruition. I know in junior, he plays exclusively left wing. Will Cooley, another guy who plays mostly left wing. A lot of these young wingers that they have coming up in the system play on the left side. They're loaded on the left. They're super thin on the right. Even Vitaly Kratsov. Now, he's played both sides in his career, if you go back to his KHL days. But he actually played... I think a little bit more on the left side in the KHL than he did on the right side. So even he might be a guy who's more comfortable on the left if all things are equal. So it's it's something that they have to address. It's something that they're going to have to make somebody change or make a trade. And I guess that's what your question is getting at, Robert. Does Lafreniere have a long-term place in this team? I just spoke about it. I think you're going to see him get a bridge deal this summer. So I don't think that he's going to be traded imminently. I certainly don't think that any rumors about him being traded at this upcoming deadline are true. That is not going to happen. But in the next few years, if the logjam at left wing continues and they feel like none of those guys can effectively move to the right, they're going to have to make some kind of a tough decision. Does he enter that conversation? It's possible. It depends on his development and what we see from him, not only for the rest of this season, but I think next season as well. And you know they don't want to do it. Nobody wants to give up on the first overall pick in the draft. But would it be the biggest surprise in the world if it ultimately came to that? I can't say it would be. Again, I I see him sticking around. I think he's going to get a bridge deal this summer. I don't think that they want to give up on him by any stretch. 
But eventually, you either got to get somebody to move to the right or you got to make a decision as far as the trade is going to be concerned. And whether that's him, Othman, Kreider, once his no movement clause expires, a lot of different ways that the Rangers could play it. But ultimately, somebody's either got to move or get moved. We'll see how it plays out. All right, let's keep going here. I see a handful of questions about who the Rangers might get rid of at the trade deadline. And so I'll just quickly address this. I just told you Lafreniere, he's not going anywhere at this trade deadline. Kako, Hedl, Keandre Miller, Braden Schneider, the young players that are making an impact at the NHL level right now are not going anywhere at this trade deadline. I would be shocked. The Rangers, and I've written this a few times, are looking to add, not subtract. Look at what they did last year. They traded draft picks to get players that could help them right away. They didn't trade anybody who is making active contributions on the roster. So they need more depth. You're not going to trade away guys that add to your depth in a a one-for-one type of deal or anything along those lines. That doesn't help you. So I don't think that those guys are going anywhere at the trade deadline. If you're going to talk about trading any of them, which is probably unlikely, but if it were to happen, that's more of an off-season decision. The only guys on the current roster who I could see being traded it's really two guys. One is Sammy Blay, who we've talked about before. He's on that conditioning stint for Hartford right now. It clearly hasn't worked out for him since the Rangers acquired him from the Blues. Even Gerard Gallant has admitted that in the last few weeks. And his cap hit is over a million and a half dollars. So if you could find somebody that's willing to take that cap hit off your hands and open up that room for you to maybe have more cushion to add guys at the deadline, I absolutely think that they would consider doing that. And the only one of the young guys on the roster right now who I think will probably be involved in trade conversations, whether it's at this deadline or over the summer, is Vitaly Kratsov. And it's it's really kind of an unfortunate situation. I honestly find myself feeling kind of bad for the guy recently. He's never really gotten a fair shake in the lineup. It's sort of this double-edged sword. He did play 17 games in a row And quite frankly, I don't think he did a whole lot with those opportunities. I think he had four points in those 17 games. And more than half of those minutes came while playing on Artemi Panarin's line. So it's not like he was constantly buried. He had chances to play with a high-end guy, and it didn't click. But there's also the reality that every time it seemed Gerard Glant wanted to make a change, whether it was from game to game or within the course of a game, Kratzoff was almost always the first guy to get dropped in the lineup. And you have to believe that it's hard for a guy to play when he's constantly looking over his shoulder, when he's constantly worried that one mistake might cost him a spot on whichever line he's playing on. And right now he's a healthy scratch. He didn't play in either of the last two games before the All-Star break. And it just feels like whether it's an organizational thing or whether it's a Gerard Gallant thing, maybe a combination of both, there's not a lot of trust right now. They, they seem reluctant to give him an extended opportunity. Again, his play has not warranted saying, banging on the table, this, this guy has to be in the lineup or in the top six or in the top nine right now. I, I'm not going to argue that it has. But it, it also just feels like he's not getting a real shot here. And if he's not getting a real shot here, the fair thing to do is send him somewhere where he might actually get that opportunity. He, he needs a fresh start. I really do kind of feel that way. So it would not surprise me if he were to get traded, again, whether it's at the deadline 
or this summer, I kind of feel like it's heading in that direction again. I mean, listen, I've said that before and I've been wrong, so maybe maybe he'll surprise us. But right now, Blay and Kratzoff would be the only guys on the roster who I think might be in play at the trade deadline. Prospects are another story. Draft picks are certainly another story. I, I definitely think they're shopping around their draft picks. But whether it's you know some of those other guys that are regulars in the lineup, I, I don't think any of those guys are going to be traded at the deadline. All right, let's keep going here. Tim Ruins wrote, now that the Sens are putting Tyler Mott back on the trade block, do you see the Rangers picking him up again? Tim, would not surprise me at all if they try. They loved what Tyler Mott brought to them last year during the playoffs. They wanted to re-sign him. Of all those guys that they acquired at the trade deadline, the guy that I think they tried the hardest to, to keep was Mott, but he ended up getting $1.35 million from the Ottawa Senators. The Rangers weren't going to go that high for him, given what they were already playing Blay and Ryan Reeves. Now Reeves is gone. Blay maybe could be gone. We'll see what happens with him. And and that spot is kind of opening back up. They might have enough cap space to fit that 1.35 million for Mott. Now, in some ways, it seems kind of silly to give up an asset for the guy again when you had him on your team last year, but it probably wouldn't. I think they gave up a fourth round pick last year. I don't think they'd have to sell the farm to get him back by any stretch. And, And he would bring a lot of what they want. So Tyler Mott, I do not think is by any stretch the most far-fetched idea that I've heard. Let's see what else we have here. David Gillian, I think, or Gillen, wrote, this is a fun one, who will be the first to score a goal for the Rangers this season? Ryan Lindgren, Sammy Blay, Jake LeCision, or Igor? AHL goals don't count. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, Blay is not in the lineup right now, so I'm certainly not picking him. Lecision, I honestly haven't seen much there to suggest that we're going to get many offensive contributions out of him. I would I would say Lindgren or Igor. And the Igor is kind of the fun answer. I'd like to say Igor. And listen, he's going to try for it. <laughs> we saw it a week or so ago. I think it was at the end of the Dallas game when he was flinging pucks down the end of the ice trying to get a goal for the Rangers at the end of that game. Or maybe it was actually it's a Florida Panthers game, I believe. I'm losing track of all my games now. But yeah, Igor, anytime there's an empty net situation, you know he's going to try it. He's got the puck skills to make it happen. I do absolutely believe whether it's this season or sometime in the future, he's going to get one. But Ryan Lindgren, with all the minutes he plays, and, and he flings a lot of pucks at the net. The guy tries. My, my realistic answer is probably Lindgren. All right, let's keep going here. Odds that Goudreau gets moved this offseason. Uh, this comes from Matt. I touched on this a little bit in my RFA story the other day. With all the moving parts that the Rangers have and the RFAs that they have to re-sign, and you know, if they were to acquire anybody that they'd like to keep beyond this season, who are the realistic options for them to trade if they wanted to clear some salary? This team is loaded with no movement clauses. Artemi Panarin, Chris Kreider, Mika Zibanejad, Jacob Truba, all those guys are immovable for the Rangers. So not this season, not this offseason. After this year, the no movement clauses lift, I believe, for Truba and Kreider. So those guys in two years might be an option, but but not right now and certainly not this offseason. The other guys that they have under big contracts, Igor Shosturkin and Adam Fox, are those are untouchable. Those guys aren't going anywhere. They're probably their two best players. So those guys aren't going anywhere either. If you look at the bigger contracts in the books, 
And these aren't even the biggest contracts in the books, far from it. But if you look at the contracts in the books, I was having this conversation. I was texting with a league source the other day, and he was asking me, who do you think that they would be most willing to give up? The two guys that have come up in conversation, and I don't think the Rangers want to lose either one of these guys. Let me make that very clear. But if they had to make a difficult decision, the two guys that they could consider are Gaudreau, who makes $3.6 or so million a year. He's got a partial no movement clause. There's 15 teams on his list that he could say no to. But there's 16 other teams that the Rangers could conceivably trade him to. So he couldn't completely block any trade. And then there's Ryan Lindgren, who makes $3 million. He's on the hook for that for one more year after this season. And those are the only guys that are really any significant salary that you could consider moving. So again, do they want to trade those guys? Absolutely not. Do I think they will? I think it's unlikely. But again, if you end up getting a Meyer or somebody else and you don't want to lose Hedo, Miller, and Lafreniere, at least not all three of them, I think Meyer, you'd have to sacrifice at least one of those guys. But if you wanted to keep the young guys and you needed to make a sacrifice somewhere else, I think the only feasible options are Goodrow and Lindgren. Again, I'm putting those odds at definitely less than 50% that that happens. But those, it's really beyond those guys. There's pretty much nobody else that you could even look at. So those would be the guys, if you needed to move salary, that they'd have to, they'd have to consider. All right, we've been going for a while, so this is going to be the last question of the episode here. And this one comes from Jack. Two questions, so you're getting a two-for-one here from Jack. Number one, are there any internal concerns about the handling of our young players, mainly forwards? Jack, I don't think that they would come out and say this, but yes, I do think that there are some concerns. I wrote about this at length. At this point, it was a month ago, probably, and... I did feel that when I went up to Hartford and talked to Chris Knobloch about this, that he said that he feels that certain guys have been rushed. And you guys will remember, he called it the yo-yo game of yanking prospects up and down, whether it be from the minors or in and out of the lineup and how that can fracture their confidence and stunt their development. So it's an issue that I think a lot of us have, have observed. Although, you know, you could look right now and say, Look at look at Philip Hedl. Look at Capo Caco. Th- those guys are sort of coming into their own right before our eyes. And even Lafreniere, he has not had a good season. He struggled immensely for about a month. But I think his last few games before the break were, were trending in the right direction, especially since they put him back on the kid line. So I don't think there's any panic in the organization by any stretch. But I do think that there are internal conversations about how do they do better with a lot of these kids. And it's something that I get the sense that they are talking about, and I absolutely believe that they should be talking about. To what extent, I can't tell you for sure, but it's a topic we've talked about before. I'm sure we'll address more in the future. But yes, as far as the way that they've handled a lot of these young players and things that have gone awry, and some of it has been more public than others, but there's definitely been some pretty glaring cases where it hasn't panned out the way that they hoped it would be, they need to learn from that to get better as a franchise and and to do better for these prospects in the years to come. Second question here from Zach, or I'm sorry, Jack. If you could only have one sandwich for the rest of your life, what would it be? Jack, you're you're stabbing me in the heart with this one. I, I don't know if I could choose. It's like asking someone to pick their favorite child. Oh, man, that is really... Really, really tough one. 
I might have to plead the fifth on this one. I, you guys know I love all sandwiches. I mean, certain days, like a cold winter day, a hot roast beef, or you guys know I'm a huge fan of the prime rib sandwich at the Garden. I'm a big fan of a Balboa, a, a hot roast beef with the garlic dressing and the melted Swiss cheese. One of my favorite delis I'll give a shout out to is Anthony's in Mamaronick, Westchester County. Go there, get the Balboa. They make their own roast beef. It's delicious. Their garlic dressing is phenomenal. Love that sandwich. So that's definitely one of my favorites. I'm a big Italian combo guy. And not just, I'm not huge on salami and pepperoni and some of the, I don't want to call them the cheaper options, but I like the prosciutto and the, the, some people call it ham, ham cappy. My family calls it gabagol. That stuff, the stuff that's got a little more to it, the super sod, those fatty pork flavored cold cuts. I love that stuff. So I'm definitely a huge fan of that. I mean, I would say the sandwich I might eat the most is turkey just because it's a healthy choice and I love fresh cut turkey. So I have turkey with whether it's chipotle mayonnaise. My fiance is a big fan of the Chick-fil-A sauce. So we actually have that. We put that on a lot of sandwiches, you know, but you can't go wrong with a chicken cutlet sandwich. One of my favorites actually is if a lot of people like chicken cutlet and bacon, which I love, but if you take chicken cutlet and put prosciutto on top, maybe with some fresh mozzarella, maybe with some melted provolone, that is a money sandwich. And I think I've told people this before, but when I go to Philly, even more so than cheesesteaks a lot of the time, I love to get roast pork with broccoli rabe and melted provolone. That is an all-time classic, one of my favorite, favorite sandwiches. So I would have to put that one high up there too. So I basically gave you five answers, but I love sandwiches. I would never eat the same one for the rest of my life. I need a variety because they all bring different characteristics and different things that I love. So that would be my long-winded answer. But definitely, definitely let me know what your favorite sandwiches are. Maybe we'll start a poll about this. I know I had the poll recently about whether you put mustard or Russian on a pastrami or a corned beef sandwich. I love pastrami corned beef sandwiches too, by the way. They, they have Carnegie Deli at the Garden, which is solid. I mean, there's places I like more around the city. But the Carnegie Deli in the Garden is a pretty solid selection. And I'm always torn about the Russian or the mustard. It, it depends on the mood I'm in that day. Uh, some people, somebody said to me, mustard should go with corned beef, Russian should go with pastrami, and I kind of like that. I think that's maybe the way that I'll do it from now on. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. I could talk about sandwiches all day. I got to go try on these suits. I'm, I'm running behind schedule right now. I'm going to be in trouble. So I got to go. I hope you guys appreciated this episode. Hit on a lot of different stuff, a lot of questions. Obviously, we talked about the Pride Night stuff, which I thought was important to do. Talked about where the Rangers stand at the break. I will be back next week. We've got hockey starting again on Monday. So definitely we'll have a new episode with new games to talk about. So that will be nice. And we'll we'll get ourselves ready for this playoff push because a lot of hockey to be played still, a lot of things that can happen. But before you know it, it's going to be here. We basically have two or so months to go. So buckle up. It's going to be fun. Everybody take care. Be well. And I will talk to you soon. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.